Welcome to the first episode proper of Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and on the first episode I've got an artist called Stanza. He's in Dundee for the Neon Digital Arts Festival and he's exhibiting his work there. Neon's running from the 9th to the 13th of November. It's a series of exhibitions, installations, performances across the city. So if you want to have a look at the programme, you can go to northeastofnorth.com. I went down to the centre space in the VRC uh, within the DCA to speak to him as he was setting up his piece called the Nemesis Machine. And if you want to catch his work, that's the place to find him as of the 9th of November. So before we get into the first ever episode, I just want to do a little bit of housekeeping and say that as I'm trying to build up a following and really build the audience for this podcast, I'd love it if you could tweet or share across any social network, Creative Chit Chat Podcast, and I hope you enjoy the first episode. You're obviously bringing the Nemesis machine to Neon. Yeah. Um, just tell us a little bit about what the piece is. Well, it's the Nemesis machine, and it's got quite a verbose title. Um, the full title is The Nemesis Machine from Metropolis to Megopolis to Ecumenopolis. And it's, uh, in a sense, when you walk into the gallery, you're confronted with a visual spectacle, which is a whole series of computer parts all laid down in a, in a system that appears like a city. Um, and it's deliberately, it's deliberately give that modelled effect to create an architecture from which you engage with the work. And there's an agency to it in that it's all lighting up and making noises and all of these different sounds and visuals are being affected by data in real time from another wireless sensor network. So the work is really about um, the ideas of big data and who owns all of this information. And it shows in real time that this stuff, this data, which has become the medium of the age, can be manipulated and transformed into a something else. In other, in other words, it's got its own value as a commodity. Um, so that, that's one of the things that the work explores. Also embedded with this, obviously, is because it's in real time and it's monitoring, in this case, the whole of uh, an area in South London where I've... Um, I have a wireless sensor network, which is a technology I've been developing since 2004. And they, I mean, I could tell you what it does, but it's a whole series of different sensors. It's not just one, it's in a network. And it's, and it's what they sort of use these days for smart cities. Um, so it's a technology that's also under the umbrella of Internet of Things. So IoT technologies has become another buzzword, um, especially in the last year or two, because most of the councils have started to think about um, how their city might become a IoT developed project. In other words, how how real time data within the city for pollution or for uh, buses or citizenship can em- somehow empower the public. But the question that I sort of pose with this is why is the council doing that? Because it's also about the securitization space. So embedded within the nemesis of the machine, which is a work about control space, issues of privacy the securitization of the whole of the city. There's this issue to do with, you know, how can we make these technologies actually work for us? Or will they actually sort of... Um, how, can they, how can we make these technologies work for us? Or will they actually um, control us even more? So we're at the... almost at the apex of a decision that's not really been made, I think, in terms of ethical ownership of data. 
What the work does is it takes the real world, it makes it virtual, online, and it makes it real again. So there's the possibilities of a feedback loop, there, a reciprocal thing where the, the data is moving. It's like a flow. But if this is just representing one city, the more interesting part comes when we merge all these cities together into this sort of hypothetical space that you could, I term it the third space. So there's these overlaying flows of data. And even Angela Merkel the other day was talking about how uh, when we're moving to intelligent systems and the new algorithms, how this affects the way that we think about things. Are we really being manipulated by the big algorithm? So all of this work isn't didactic in any any sense, it positions itself in the middle of that issue. And it poses the, it, it, it seeks to pose more questions than give answers. There's a big focus on data at the mm -hmm. moment. And um, it, yeah, everywhere seems to just be creating more and more and more. Mm -hmm. um, and on a, on a personal level, do you think that's it's something that you should embrace or it's something you should try and push against? Well, as I said, that for artists and for more or less for everybody, data has become a medium. It's for, I think data has become the medium of the age. So I've been embracing this because it's, it's a bit like um, thinking that data can be owned by any particular individual or body. So in 2004, I sequenced my... I used my blood and sequenced my DNA to do a full DNA test and made what was at that time a series of audiovisual portraits using my DNA. But the project was about the notion of what's inside our bodies is also a public domain space. It can be commonly owned because um, there are loads of companies doing um, patents on various parts of the DNA sequence. So if you start to research that, that you then have to pay them. So the, the, the original project was about who owns the DNA data inside our bodies and how that could be exploited for common good. And I suggested at that time that the Genomixer project, it's online, there's genomixer.com, I suggested that there are 100,000 people should get their DNA tested and we should form a public limited company of which the derivable intellectual, uh, a derivable income per share would then be divided equally. In other words, it would become a capital project, but the money would be redistributed amongst the common owners, i.e. the public. So if everybody in the country did this, then we'd all be benefiting from it. Whereas one company will eventually do this and we'll all be paying them. And I think that's the same with Google. If you're thinking about Google and you work for Google and you're a CEO and you went to the pub on a Friday night with your five other CEOs and you, you know, can you write the business plan on the back of a drip mat? Okay, future thinking, what you'd say is we want total ownership and total control of all of this data and all of these gateways and want to sell it back as a commodity back to our user base. How are we going to do that? So on the other side of that, you might say that really what we want is we want common ownership and equal space. And we want to somehow move up against that, not in a, not in a possibly not in a political way, not in an, an activist way, but, but, but it's something that we want to think about that in 20 years' time. We might not be allowed to move through the virtual borders. We, we take... I mean, particularly, we're really lucky. We take our freedoms for granted, but there is a big migrant crisis. And the migrant crisis is generally, in one sense, could be, could be thought of as something to do with borders. In the real world, it's very, very difficult to cross these physical spaces if there's a, board, a border or a wall or something in the way. In the virtual world, 
At the moment, it's easy to move around these spaces, but 20 years from now, it could be the same sort of problem that you, you need different sorts of permissions to, to move around freely. So the idea of an internet of things like the Nemesis machine as a smart city, it acts as a prototype demonstrator in one sense for the whole umbrella of the internet of things. And I mean, if rumors are true, it's suggested that even in the next four years, there's going to be 20 billion separate devices all connected to this separate internet, IoT, internet of things, in which IBM, Cisco, all these big companies are all having a, having a play in this. But also, you've got internet of things project in Glasgow, in Santander, in our house, in, in um, you've got Milton Keynes in Cambridge. All of the local councils are adopting some form of connected city device. So if we roll the tape back to 1992, you know, when CCTV sort of broke out of its shell, as it were, there were various reasons for that. But one of the real reasons is that the councils, one, they, one, once they saw that there was a possible useful service, I mean, that's questionable, but maybe they saw that there was a possible useful service, they rolled it out. The reason they rolled it out is because they had so much money to spend. It's, it's, it's what you spend your money on. At that time, it was all our council tax. It was sitting in, in different funds. And somebody saw that, it, well, it was the Bulger case in, in Bootle that was the, to cause the domino effect. So as soon as you saw that, you know, you could use CCTV possibly to highlight the use of security within a public space, which was the shopping centre or even catch a criminal and all of that sort of argument, then every other council followed suit. And the same thing is happening now without any higher questioning of where this goes. So let's imagine a world where everyone gets networked up and there's the Internet of Things in, in Glasgow and Dundee and it's all connected up. And 50 years' time from now, all of these cities are connected up. And then somebody says at the border, some, some questions here. I don't know. You paid your rent. <laughs> and to talk a little bit about your process okay, um, and how you work... From your work, you can see that your outputs and your pieces cover a whole range of, of media. My question would be, are there commonalities in your process that you, you go through every time you're creating a piece? I'm tempted to laugh at that question because the commonalities are generally despair. <laughs> <laughs> I generally have a research phase that I don't really acknowledge as part of this process. It's embedded in it. For me... The artwork used to be about the making. This was 20, 30 years ago. It was about this final output. You know, that people ask you what you do and they expect the answer. I'm a painter or I make music or I make interactive systems or I make installations. And I do all of those things. You know, there's like loads of albums and music and videos and paintings. But actually, that isn't what I do. I mean, that's the output from what I do. What I do is at the moment, I've spent the last 15 years doing this. I spend hours doing research into these interactive technologies that are to do with surveillance culture and um, I guess they call it ubiquitous computing and embedded systems and and, and they, that research you know then sometimes they frame it around a question loosely you know how can surveillance technologies or uh, CCTV used for cultural outputs so that gets it closer to okay if we're going to frame it in that context what is it that I'm going to make so for example there was a piece of work called Visitors to a Gallery where I just used the embedded system. Because in the room, we can see there's a CCTV up there. I used the whole embedded system in the building to think about the architecture itself. It looked like it was a work about surveillance, and it was, but it was really about extending the notion of the architecture of the building by, by projecting on the outside of the building what was going on on the inside of the building. 
because it's also a public domain space, it was about mirroring this and making it transparent. But these ideas from one work, they bleed into the next, and I'm not really sure where they end, because work like the Nemesis Machine, which I started in 2004, developing the software, uh, investigating the, the wireless sensor technologies, um, eventually um, building a wireless system, they take time and they sort of have a flow in their own direction. And after a while, I, I, I just follow that flow. Another project, Sound Cities, is an online database of thousands of found sounds from around the world using a similar sort of recorders to what we've got on the table here. I use a little Ederol. And I go around recording all these found sounds. And that, that's a bit like using a camera and taking a modernist snapshot. It goes click and you've got your sound, but it's a bit linear. And you put the sound onto this online system soundcities.com and it's an open database and i put a feed there so you can extract from the feed and make your own interfaces and i put up a couple of thousand sounds and then all of a sudden i'm getting emails from universities for example recently in america and they've got 30 students that have seen my project and they're running a lab based on my sound cities project and they're all out in the field with their editors making sounds and they're putting it up online and they're well, basically, they email me for te technical support on a project that's unfunded. And I'm thinking, oh, this is all a bit weird. But it's actually, that's this project. The beauty of some of these projects is that they then take a life of their own. And you've got to let that go and see where it goes it's, it, it, in its own right. It's got its own path. And, for example, the path that that's developing is, is, is into a, a larger, I guess, social community of people that are interested in found sound. And, the, you know, they're the building a community, which which I don't know where I fit into this anymore. <laughs> um, I've actually used those found sounds and made my own album, so that's why I did it. There's the musical interpretation of City Space. It's always been something that I've been doing for about 20-odd 20, 20 years. So I made a sound, an album called Sound Cities, the Sound City CD, which is completely mixed and remixed from the sounds without any um, additional features and synthesizers. It's just dedicated found sound, but arranged in such a way that it seems composed and constructed. And sometimes they do live performances with the same same setup. So from the, the technology side, yeah. um, is it just yourself or do you collaborate with other people or pull people in for projects? Or? The idea of collaboration has always appealed to me. Most of I mean, I, I, I use the name Stanza and I, that's, that's my, my name and all of this work comes out of my studio. Occasionally when I look enough to get a, a grant or um, a commission, sometimes I double up projects and, and, it need, and I need to find people to support that. But I don't approach these from a, from a genuinely collaborative way. Um, I, I am open to collaboration, but it's, it's just sort of never happened. But I think that's, a, you know, I think that's something that my work would benefit from moving forward. There are a number of projects. Um, I'm, they're in their first beta phase. They're there and they've been sitting there. And, and funnily enough, although after 20 or 30 years of doing this, the technology seems to have got easier. At the same time, it's also taken, it's got harder again. Um, and they're real experts in different, uh, different areas of where all this work has developed to. It's all branched, 15 years ago it was, uh, maybe you just call it new media art, and there was only a few channels. Now there's the bio arts, there's the VR technologies, there's just pure channels in data visualization. There's about you know, dozens of different technologies all, all 
needing five or six years worth of dedicated technical experience. So what I've got really good at is being able to see what these technologies can do, being able to get under the bonnet with them, to, to, to re-adapt them, if not necessarily rebuild the whole engine from the, from the, from the ground up. In a sense, one of those things is that you have to be aware of is looking at something that in three, in the short term, will become obsolete. I mean, there's a current craze for the virtual reality sets, but they're 20 and 30 years old. They've come back as if they're, they're new, and that's really quite interesting. Maybe if you were at art college in the 80s, you were learning black and white photography. I mean, you would have known. I mean, I know people are doing that in the late 90s and then all of a sudden their degree in photography is obsolete because it goes digital so it's the obsolescence of technology is is one of the things that that you have to consider when you're you're framing questions that are to do with art i, th- I suppose you, you've sort of touched on a little bit of the next question and that as technology has changed mm-hmm. um how do you choose the medium with which you create your pieces I don't go about it that way. That's part of the process. I don't okay. choose the medium. It's I sort of explore a set of parameters based on that idea. I mean, I, I'm not really precious about that that side of it. There are lots of pieces of software. Uh, well, I like the idea of making net art, and that's work that's dedicated specifically for the internet, which I've been doing since 1995-96, because that allows you the possibility of that global audience, and by using the you know, the protocols of the internet, for, ex- for example, you can explore different side of things. I mean, the, so those works have been sitting there yeah, and developing for 20 years, but they also address the same question. I mean, there's a piece of work called Urban Generation. Well, although it sits online as a piece of net art, the software system itself is drawing images from 200 network CCTV cameras and representing them into this visualized aesthetic i mean it's not vertov's man with the movie camera where you've got a starting point and an end point in a film that's always the same what you're presented with when you see this is this multi-point perspective that i was referring to so the the theme that's underlying some of these other works when you look at them and so it might that might be made with sound for example sonicity is made with sound and so it's it's exhibited on 180 speakers so it looks like some sort of physical system, but it's the sound isn't like sound, it's with the modernist sound aspect. It's pulling in data and translating that data into sound in real time. As urban generation takes the live CCTV feeds and then turns them into this real time morphing experience that isn't a film. It looks like a film, but it's generated in real time. If you logged on to a computer next to it, to the same work, it would look different. So that, that, it's that aspect of how can you manipulate some of these aspects that are in the technology that interests me. Another piece of work called Agency at the End of Civilization I was given access to all the number plates in the south east of England. So it's using the car number plate recognition system. I've got, I think, 40 million records in a data set. And I merged those the na- well, like from the records, you can know the number plate of the car, it's where it was, and at what time it was there. So I created, I merged that system into another data set, which was a false narrative data set of suggesting that I knew who it was in the car. So Mr. Smith is driving down the A4 at three o'clock in his round BMW, 
and then a narrative comes out after it speculating what he was doing or what he might be doing. So there's a whole system, system of 500 stories embedded into this. And there's, I think there's 22 screens on the floor that are showing 400 cameras feeds all in real time. And this was just being shown in the new Westminster Gallery in Canada. And there's all these kids sort of looking at that. I mean, they spent hours listening to these stories and some kids walked in there and I think they, they then made a play. And because I use the hoodie as, as a, a sort of symbol um, in my work, they did this play where they're all walking around, I think it was Vancouver, in binary hoodies, singing songs from the this song, The Agency at the End of Civilization. So there's, you know, things move out of, there's, there's a never-ending process in these works. So my next question, I suppose, would be, what excites you about the future? If anything. If anything, thanks for that one. Well, my daughter reads a lot of books. I mean, if it was 15 years ago, the older kids seem to have, you know, be, I think they call it the Harry Potter generation. And at the moment she's reading the Hunger Games and Divergent series, so it's all this dystopian vision. Although the dystopian vision is, seems to be embedded in these works, oh, surveillance culture and stressing privacy issues. Actually, I'm actually more optimistic because we've got a heads up on where this is going. You know, I mean, if we walk, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, we've got a heads up on this, so there's no reason why not to be optimistic. So this your work pulls apart those different layers of, mm -hmm. of a city mm -hmm. um, and then analyses that. And you live in London, which you're sort of embedded in that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but do the, you... the, the, the London thing is is because that's where the centre network is currently located. I've actually made it portable and, you know, I can take it from city to city and connect it up and there's another system that will do a mile line of sight from centre to centre. So this is what we're talking about, is a mesh network. It's not just one point to one point. Mm -hmm. It's the idea if, if there are 30 or 40 nodes in it and one drops out, it will still work. Um, so I've taken them to all the cities and in 2006 the project said city was really about visualising these data sources. This is about exposing, the nemesis machine is about exposing it in a different way. Anyway, you were saying about London really. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think, do you get outside, because you, your work's very much focused around cities. Okay, um, well, I have a bit of a standing joke on that one. That I've been to Tokyo, but I've never been to Japan, and I've been to Shanghai, and I've been to China, and I've been to Brazil. And I've been to rather Sao Paulo, but I haven't been to Brazil. And the sort of my art career is a bit like that. New York, but not America. It's all cities. Mm -hmm. um, but that's maybe where you get drawn to and invited to as, as, as an artist. Mm -hmm. But out with that, or do you spend the majority of your time within those cities or do you desire <laughs> to get out with that and just get away from it? Uh, yeah. Well, does coming to Dundee count? It's escaping the city. Uh, I don't know. Is, is that your? Well, I suppose is that your impression of, of Dundee that it doesn't have that feel? I haven't about got it. any impression because I haven't been. I've, I've, I've only been here two days and I haven't seen it. If I'm going by the impression what everyone else says, it's a really splendid city, and I'm here for ten days, so I'm going to find out. So you were to say? <laughs> I was going to ask about Dundee. So it's a city that's going through a lot of change at yeah. the moment. There's a lot of development. Yeah. Um, 
and it's going through a sort of a phase of, of growth. And you said yourself that you've been involved in those discussions with councils around the ideas of smart cities and things like that. Yeah. But is there any sort of advice that you would give to a city that's looking to change? Yeah, we're getting involved, artists involved really early on in the in, in the idea of regeneration to suggest alternative ways of doing it. Um, as collaborative projects, I'd take a pool of money and um, present it present it as an open call and say, "Look, we're going to do this. Have you got any other ideas as as open as that? You know, and maybe not to say we're looking for artists to make artworks because I don't think that's what I was suggesting there. I mean, we know it's going to be regeneration, but what is it that the designers and the engineers and the, all of those are missing? You know, I mean, in a sense, artists should be fed up." by now by by being the seeds of cultural capitalism you know there's a rundown area let's bring in the artists they'll do up a few you know they'll bring their work and put some paintings up on the walls and then we'll put a coffee bar in there and then we'll charge them rent and then we'll kick them out and then we'll sell the flats yeah that's a good model i mean we're fed up with that model but i think for for a city a city of the future to work it has to have an engaging talk to everybody. It's it's more on a cellular level. Everybody has to be, you know, moving and thriving, and the network of, of everybodyness. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing when you're you're evolving this idea within the Internet of Things, smart city. It's it's that this city is the the whole of the city is a public domain space, and that's the insides of the buildings and the outside of the buildings. It, if you're going to go there, and I think, unfortunately, well, actually, if we're going to go there and we've, we've admitted that you know, all these issues to do with privacy uh, have changed the way that we, we move and engage within society and we can acknowledge that, you know, Facebook can pass our individual streams and then feed information back to us. And we've noticed how, how in the last couple of years... You know, that even on a network like that, it's closed itself down, become linear, so we only get certain sorts of information fed to us, which basically means that although we think we're connected to the other billion users, we're not. We're only connected to a small village of our own inner circle. What will happen if we don't tackle this problem, or at least lay down a framework where we can engage with it, is that actually the city won't be a bigger place. It'll be a much smaller place. I think it's important, though, to have... Those, those voices and to have the people who are creating within the city have them involved in that, that change. And I do. I often know it's presented around a festival where it's all about the output. Mm. You know, I mean, for example, you might have a, a light night festival, which is, you know, engages the public because that's part of the remit, public engagement. Um, but that, that that's largely done for that one reason. It's, I mean, I like the idea that there might be a bigger question rather than having stuff that make, you know, is all, always about the play and playful interaction within the city or about the photograph that has the, you know, the kids with their smiling faces pointing at something in wonderment. Um, maybe the whole, you know, a festival could be posed around a slightly different question. You know, may, maybe even more sinister. You know, what would happen in the dystopian city of Dundee in 20 years if... This is a presentation night, you know, on this. Or what would happen? How do we make this a... a I don't like the word to use the... To be so binary about it, but you could pose it in the black and white binary, you know, dystopian night versus utopian night, which, which is the city we want to live in. Because by pushing both to their furthest parameters, you would now 
where you, what that would be like. So you, you've mentioned art and design. Design, as, okay. Yeah. Um, how, how closely related do you think the two fields are and do you think that your work ever... For a while, sorry, was the last bit of the question. Um, so do you think your work ever incorporates aspects of design or yes it does it, some, some of the some of the software systems are designed procedurally from the ground up to achieve an objective and I did think that they you know I would have agreed in 2000 to 2003 or 4 that the, the, the disciplines of art and design were merging so closely that you know maybe labels weren't necessary I don't I, I, I don't agree with that anymore I find art and art sits in its own space and the design space sits in, in, in its space and sometimes they can just slightly rub up against one another but it's not as I also think that although I've been talking about taking down the borders sometimes within some practices it's helpful to put them back up again in order to study them for, for example if, if you're going to study if you're an artist I think it's really useful to have studied the history of art and I don't just mean you know the last 20 30 40 50, 50 years right back to you know the 16th century to look at the way you know pictorial representation has changed through history gives you a clue into the way that technologies that we're using today might also be a embedded into art and will change in the future because it's 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 actually a linear path um, i mean the idea that for example artists are you know adopting technologies of the day to make art it's not it's not a new phenomenon you know one could go back to i mean i like david hockney's anecdotal well it wasn't anecdotal but his observation that it's odd that all these paintings in the, I think it was the 17th century, all have left-handed people in them. They went, they went, 80% of the population wasn't left-handed. And at those days, you know, that was because if you walked down the street and you went to the opticians or the lens base maker, you know, the leather maker guy would be next door and the painter would be next door. They'd all be in little artisan shops. And the artist probably walked by one day and noticed that the light was being refracted through the lenses onto the walls. And... All of a sudden, I mean, it's not great to acknowledge, but all of a sudden, all of these artists were basically using projectors to project onto their cameras and ended up with lots of left-handed um, left people. And David Hockney pointed this out. And really, that means that artists have always been influenced by technology. Another real technological breakthrough that I think is a, is a bit of a silly anecdote, but nonetheless it's, it's actually re relevant is that you know, artists were in their studios until the late 19th century then all of a sudden they weren't it was en plein air painting you know you got Vincent out, outside with his brush in the south of France next to his mate Paul Gauguin and, and all of these all of these things you know that, 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 that very aspect of taking the paint and the canvas out of the studio changed the history of painting but it was only enabled because of the invention of the toothpaste tube one technology influences another practice. Now we re, you know we move forward another hundred years. There's so many different technologies. It's hard to know which one is doing which. There's loads going on. You know, you can have technologies just adapted to to what looks like to make art, which I think happens loads. I know. Let's use VR technology and make something that looks like art. So you've got a whole people that might not have studied art but studied another field, and they will get hold of a VR set and make something visual that looks like art and that's that that isn't really what art is either
And that's it. Very first episode complete. A big thank you to Stanza for coming on and being the very first guest. If you'd like to find out a bit more about his work, you can go to stanza.co.uk. All the links to the work that he mentioned I've put in the show notes, so you can find them there as well. If you'd like to see his work in person and you're around Dundee between the 9th and the 13th of November, he's exhibiting at the Centre Space in the DCA. So that's sort of down through the cafe and then down again in the Centre Space. So yeah, big thanks to, to Stanza. And if you'd like a little teaser as to who's going to be on the podcast next week, follow on Twitter and on Instagram and I'll be putting a little teaser out. So that's at CCC Dundee. Thanks for listening.